Welcome to Householders, a conversation about American life as Zen practice. I'm Inga Annie Wade. And I'm Kyosaku John Mitchell, and we're lay members of the Atlanta Soto Zen Center. Tell me about how Zen came into the picture for you. I think I've always struggled like with anxiety. And when I was um, a teenager, I struggled with depression as well, mm-hmm. especially when my uncle died. And uh, my sister actually gave me a book by Thich Nhat Hanh on the death of a loved one. Mm. That really spoke to me. I was about 17 years old when I uh, read that book. But I definitely didn't start practicing then. It was just something that was always in the back of my mind that like very, really resonated with me. And then I moved to Atlanta when I was about 23. And I was uh, in a relationship with the, uh, the man that I would marry in the future. And we sort of have different attachment styles mm. uh, where I'm sort of like the needy one and he's mm-hmm. sort of the detached one. Mm-hmm. And those two attachment styles seem to be attracted to each other, but it mm. doesn't always work very well. But... Uh, we were both pretty set on making it work. Um, and I thought, well, I'm going to have to get my anxieties under control. First of all, I know that that's what I can do on my end. Mm. And thinking back to the book that I had read by Thich Nhat Hanh, I was like, I think I need a meditation practice. I went to several different meditation places and what, what kinds I went to, uh, Siddha yoga mm-hmm. And that one's a basically like a chanting practice hmm. that didn't really resonate with me very much. And then I went to Shambhala, meditated with them, which I thought was really nice. Uh, but the reason I stayed with uh, the Atlanta Soto Zen Center was because of these this great sense of community that was there. And I, I felt like, you know, that I could be friends with these people and that they were just very down to earth. Did you feel that the other places you visited were lacking in the element of community or was it just more like these people felt like your people and those people, it didn't work for whatever reason? Yeah, I think they did have a community at at those other places too, but it didn't feel like, I felt like an outsider in those communities. Like you have to work really hard to be a part of the community there. Hmm. Work hard at what? Fitting in. Hmm. Like being outgoing, talking to everyone. Yeah. So, for example, in Siddha Yoga, there was it. There was a big cultural uh, barrier there. There was a lot of uh, things about the practice that uh, were very cultural to that region. Like, um, you know, the the very importance placed on the guru. And I went during their founder ceremony, like we have here, and we chanted his name for over an hour. This is a person who wasn't there, like a like a sort of historical teacher person. Yeah, I mean, he was pretty recent, but he was definitely dead. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> um, and, you know, there's some some rules about, like, not putting your feet towards, you know, certain areas. And I think a lot of practices have those kind of rules. And But for whatever reason, I just didn't feel like I fit in mm-hmm. there. Sure. It, it was the same with the Shambhala Center. It felt like they're... Just it was kind of restricted in a way that 
if you wanted to be a part of the community, you would have to probably be going for several years before somebody noticed that you were there. <laughs> when I finally landed at Atlanta Soda Zen Center, I knew that was the one. The first time? Yeah, the first time I went mm. there. I mean, I, I think also that I, I'm sort of a weeaboo, like a, a Japan nerd. Ah, I see. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm self-proclaimed. People don't know that by looking at me, uh-huh. but I'm definitely a weeaboo. Uh, and I, yeah, I just love all things Japan. And uh, Zen made sense. Thich Nhat Hanh is a Zen Buddhist. Yeah. So it, you know, it was my early, my early introduction to Buddhism was with Zen. So I, it all just fit together for me. The people, the atmosphere, the the teachings. Can you remember what happened? The, like, what was the first thing that you went to? The first thing was the introduction to Zen class. They were just very friendly and very, like, relaxed, and it felt comfortable. Did you sit Zazen? Yeah. Cool. And then discuss? Yeah. They just go over the basics with you, and then you meditate for, like, 10 minutes, and... That's about it. And then I think this time we actually had tea, which was really nice. I love green tea. And then when did you come back? When was the next time? I came to that one. They they encourage you to go a couple of times. You might get different teachers. And then after that, after I felt comfortable with practicing like that, I went to the Monday book club, Monday night book club. Do you remember what they were reading? Yes, we were reading Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Oh, great. Good place to start. <laughs> it was an awesome place to start. I recommend that if anybody's starting Zen to start with that book. It was very exciting learning to train your mind in a different way. Kind of like when you're, you know, you get into college and they start teaching you philosophy or something. <laughs> and you're like, okay, this is much different than what I'm used to thinking. So how did it kick in? At what point did you start sort of identifying with that and and thinking about it or, 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 or stop thinking about it and start just sort of living that way. How did, how did this absorb into your life? Well, I mean, I, I went for a while at the beginning with the uh, Monday Night Book Club. And then I found out that uh, I could get uh, counseling for free because, because I, I'm disabled and I, I uh, live off Social Security. You can get some some perks from that, thankfully. And one of them was being able to have therapy, which was actually down the road from the Atlanta Soda Zen Center. And I went there for four years. And during that four years, I didn't go to Zen as much. But I kind of felt like it was either or. And I did feel a little trapped over at the therapy center because they had me in in a dialectical behavioral therapy class too so I was going twice a week and I didn't feel like with school you know because I was a full-time student I didn't feel like I really had enough time to go to zen on top of that so those four years were a little scant I didn't go a whole lot and then I started back after after those those four years of therapy and I went back and I was like you just just knew like that the whole time I had really wanted that I'd really been like yeah this DBT is is great and I really love talking to my therapist but there's something about meditation that puts me in a state of mind that works better for me than than therapy Mm -hmm. 
When did you take the precepts? Uh, once I came back. I came back and I started going to Sunday. Um, that I had never gone to Sunday before. There was just something in me that wanted to start practicing seriously. And Sensei finally noticed me. I really hadn't had much interaction with Sensei before then. I filmed this video for class, uh, which they did use on the STO website for a while. And that's that was my first interaction with Sensei. And then that's so when I started coming back, I went to the Sunday service and even I think that was an even greater sense of community there because, well, one sensei, I mean, he's very welcoming. Yeah. And, you know, I felt like he wanted me to be there. And then that's so I just asked him if I could take the precepts and he was like, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) How does being an initiate in Soto Zen affect you on a daily basis, having a name and whatnot? It is different for sure, because before I would be like, okay, I, I can't do Zen for a while, and then I would just disappear, you know? Mm-hmm. But I don't do that anymore. Like, mm-hmm. I make it a priority to be a part in some way. Mm-hmm. Even if I don't have a lot of time, I still want to show up. Like, whether it's for the community part of it where I'm doing the work, I redesigned the Atlanta Soda Zen Center website as a UX designer with a team, with a design team that we put together, and the Silent Thunder Order website. Uh, and that that also gives me a lot of pride, not in, like, the hubris sense. Just yeah. A, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It makes me happy, you know, yeah. that, to be a part of, to help in some way. So I think I've done a lot more of the community type effort. Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to get more back to like the actual meditation part and the Dharma. Mm-hmm. But for a while, it's been a lot of the community, you know, having having the three parts. You, sometimes you rely, you focus on more one area than the other. Sure. I guess that's why they're three, right? Yeah. We could probably go on all day, but I do want to hear how you got started and you know your story i wonder i wonder if it's as long and uh chopped up as mine sure it is these are stories that we can tell in an infinitely unfolding way right yeah like and i'm sure i'm sure we will but my encounter with buddhism was around the same age yours was maybe 15 16 um and it was also a book uh and i don't even remember if someone gave me the book uh i think that I mean, it's actually probably worth going further back than that in the story. And, you know, I, I was raised in a Jewish family that was culturally very Jewish. And, you know, we went to Sunday. My brother, my younger brother and I went to Sunday school and Tuesday Hebrew school after school every week. And, you know, we had, uh, you know, a conservative Jewish education and, you know, observed the holidays for the most part. And, you know, there was at least some sort of Shabbat practice in our house. And we were both uh, trained for bar mitzvah ceremonies. And I got the feeling that it was a very high priority in my family religion, mm-hmm. specifically Judaism was a high priority in our family, but it never felt like it was inside of me. It always felt like it was this external thing that I was expected to participate in but it felt kind of hollow. Like I felt like I was going through emotions that were expected of me, but I wasn't really feeling anything inside. 
And uh, as I, you know, became a teenager, I started to um, to reason my way out of it and to sort of express it in kind of atheist terms or whatever. But there were there were that wasn't ever really quite right. How old were you when you were starting to go through your atheist phase? I would say I was 12 or 13 because there was a sort of pivotal moment where I was expected to give a speech at my bar mitzvah, which was in Israel, uh, which this is, there's, we'll, we'll get, I feel like this is like an episode <laughs> unto itself, the yeah. whole like, like religious upbringing thing. Yeah. But there was a moment at, at which I was, I was planning to say in front of my family, like, I don't believe in God. Wow. In a, in a, at a religious ceremony that I was the star of. And my voice broke when I said it. And I sort of didn't know quite at the time that that wasn't exactly true with the words that were coming out of my mouth. But mm. I knew that it was more complicated than I thought it had been. Like it had seemed so simple in my mind, but then emotionally it wasn't, right? So yeah. the I, I think what that did was it sort of set off this spiritual quest that wasn't framed in any specific terminology of anybody else other than myself. Or uh, really, there was no terminology at all. I just sort of found my heart, you know, I found my soul in me somewhere and I could feel it. And I was, I began sort of experimenting with it. And I did pull from books and, you know, like Wicca and other sort of 60s hippie stuff that I was reading. Yeah, but me but too. then I, and, and I tried things, I did magic, you know, like I tried all these things and it worked, you know. And what I mean by worked is it sort of woke me up in this way that praying according to the prayer book I was handed when I was in second grade, like never did anything for me up to that point. Uh, and so then I started finding all these things that were bringing me to life. And, and at somewhere around that time, 15 or 16, I read this book about the Buddha and it was a contemporary book. I feel like I actually just sort of picked it up on my own because it was a new book that was getting like New York Times book awards or something. Um, and it was a it was a contemporary Indian American writer who sort of went to his ancestral North Indian uh, region to retrace his own steps like he didn't he felt like he was disconnected from culture and from his upbringing and spirituality and all that stuff he knew there was something he was missing and so he went there and sort of encountered the buddha as this looming figure over the people there and researched the story and life of the buddha and ended up telling that story in a way that was sort of intertwined with his own upbringing as like a you know privileged indian guy who was out of touch with reality and then made contact with the world outside and realized like the truth about being alive in some sense. And so he sort of saw it as a parallel. And that really struck me. The first thing, the first encounter with Buddhism I had was with the biography of the Buddha, according to the sort of general telling of it. And I was like, oh, I kind of see myself in that. Like, you know, you have to go outside of this comfortable upbringing that you have in order to see what the world is really like. And the Buddha did that. And he ended up finding something universal in it that could be, uh, you know, that was a way of of coming to life for everyone, which was very different from this Jewish special chosen thing that I that I was raised with. And I don't remember if I tried sitting meditation at that time, but I definitely locked Buddhism in as something that I cared about. And uh, when I got to college, 
was when I was first given the opportunity to practice. And there, there was this whole academic movement uh, at my school that was trying to incorporate meditation practice into the curriculum so that we could study Buddhism and contemplative practices, but not the way the religious studies department did. Uh, it was a religious studies professor who sort of objected to the idea that you could study religion uh, or spirituality itself without participating in it, as though right. it was some sort of scientific thing that you could just dissect and look at the anatomy of and understand. Um, and of course, this traditional sort of Western academics wanted nothing to do with sitting in meditation as part of coursework. What school was that? This was at Brown University. And the the program was called the Contemplative Studies Initiative. And it's now a department. Like now undergrads who go to Brown can major in this. Um, but we all had to create independent concentrations and get deans to approve them and stuff. But that's what I did. And so like I, I ended up kind of studying. Um, I actually studied a sort of musical flavor of the Contemplative Studies program. Um, studying sort of ritual music and contemplative music traditions and playing a lot of music and recording a lot of music. I love um, that. As part of my major. And it was amazing. But the, but the core of the program that we all did, no matter what our specialty was, was Zen meditation. And, the, and Hal Roth, the uh, advisor, creator of the Contemplative Studies Initiative, uh, was a Rinzai Zen initiate who'd studied oh. for a long time. So he became our our Zen teacher and we, we took and all the sort of intro to Buddhism and Taoism and classes like that were all taught by him. So we did a lot of the reading. I got familiar with a lot of the sort of Mahayana variations and then like, and the evolution of Zen. Um, but he had this funny emphasis on Rinzai as like sort of the serious yeah. form of Zen so there was always this, there were these moments. I mean, we, we read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind in one of these classes. Like we read a little bit of Dogen, but there was, it was mostly Rinzai stuff we were reading, especially like the contemporary sort of introduction to Zen books. They were all like koans were a big part of it. And Zazen was not, you know, your eyes were closed and, you know, it was, it was, yeah. it was a different, slightly different form. Sensei has described uh, Rinzai as the warrior Zen and Soto Zen as the farmer Zen. Yeah. And I always felt like a little more of a farmer, I think. Me too. Uh, and and it, it was it was not quite fitting, but we had all these Zen teachers, all these teachers, different traditions, but there were a few Zen teachers, come to campus and lead these retreats, one, two-day, three-day retreats. And so I did like intensive practice with a variety of teachers uh, and felt like I got a really good exposure to what was out there. And then... Uh, went out into the world with my practice uh, as, you know, such as it was and had a much longer wander before coming back to formal Zen practice this year. Uh, and the, I mean, I was, I had a, I had a Zen practice. I mean, like I would call the meditation that I did throughout Zazen, uh, but it was independent. I, or like, I, you know, or it was mixed with Judaism or it was mixed with, you know, this, I, I have a whole, Burning Man chapter of my life that, that I'm sure will come up. But I was doing this practice sort of off and on, but it wasn't until this year when I realized that I was moving back to Atlanta finally, because uh, I grew up here, and that I could find a sangha that I could join, that I could stay with. I moved around a lot in the last 10 years um, and you know got married and had kids and the settling down was about to begin. 
And so this year I was finally like, I really should find a Soto Zen Sangha. Like that's, that's what I, by that point, I was like familiar enough with what that meant that I knew it was a thing I wanted to try in the proper container of a Sangha with a teacher. Um, and so, you know, month two of the pandemic, I Googled Atlanta Soto Zen and found our Sangha. And uh, I ended up encountering Ellison Roshi. What were your first impressions of Ellison Roshi? Oh, I thought he was exactly who I was looking for. I sort of had been looking for a teacher my whole life uh, who would be someone I could sit face to face with and take seriously and not take too seriously yeah. and who wouldn't who would take me just the right amount of seriously and I really saw that in him right away. I could tell I could tell that his practice was very sincere, but I also could tell that he wasn't holding on to it too tightly. And yeah. like you were saying about the warriors and in Rinzai Zen, like I I did kind of feel like the people I was sitting with in college took it too seriously. They held on too tightly yes. to what they were supposed to be doing and supposed to look like. And I could tell that that wasn't his thing. Sometimes I imagine like the the Zen sensei is just like, he's sitting there <laughs> and you ask him a question and he's just all like, I know everything. So I automatically know the answers to the universe and yeah. you must respect me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how true that is, but that was my, you know, initial thought of like how these religious figures would be. Maybe because the pastors at my churches were kind of like that. <laughs> and I think I had that sense too. I sort of, at least I, I thought of like a master, like a Zen master or a Buddhist master as like a very serious person. I mean, I knew that that, I knew that that was not supposed to be true in some sense. Like we read all the lynchy stories, all the crazy stories about like hitting people with sticks and stuff when I was in college and like she just yelling incoherently at people as a way of teaching them Zen. But like that had never, I'd never met a person who was like that before. And I kind of got the sense that Elson Roshi was that kind of person, but was being polite. Oh, and I was living in Philadelphia at the time. So I was like, I'm not here yet. I'm not in Atlanta yet, but I, I assume it doesn't matter because you're all sitting virtually anyway. Right. Uh, and and I'll, by the time we're able to, you know, come together in person again, I'll be all settled in Atlanta and everything will be fine. So let me just join now. And so I, I started doing the sort of um, the the multi-sangha sit at seven in the morning um, on Zoom. That was That's like some ASCC people and some people from elsewhere too. Um, and, uh, it just turned out not to work with my schedule. It was too late. <laughs> I need to sit like at five thirty in the morning or, or my kids are all up and it's, you know, oh, my, yeah. my day is all shot. Um, but, uh, that was the first thing I did. I did. I also, uh, I joined the, the other book club, the, the, the cross STO book club, um, and did that for a few weeks. Uh, and I was coming on every Sunday too. And that, that was where I sort of met everyone uh and got a sense of what was going on and saw what the ritual container for this sangha was like and found it really comfortable and really um you know unpretentious and real and felt super welcomed the whole time and like you i also sort of found ways to plug in my skills like my digital creativity uh as a way of giving back to the sangha and at a time i'm sure you feel the same way at a time when like most of what the sangha is doing is digital in nature yeah it felt like a as meaningful a way to contribute as there could be you know given that we're not there to like sweep because there's no one there right it was it's very important to have that digital presence yeah and so 
these podcasts were sort of the thing I came up with and Sensei was all about it. And so we got his podcast going and, and now, now here you and I are sort of coming up with the, with the second iteration and the end of my first story about like how this practice came into my life is that I've never had anything that just felt, I, I never had anything new come into my life and land so just neatly and stay and just be such a steady, stable part of who I am and what I do as this. And that's just sort of how I know it was, it was the right place and the right people and the right practice. And, you know, like I said, I sort of kept up my sitting practice throughout this, the 10 years of wandering, but it's never been like it is now either. Cause I feel like I'm sitting with people, even though, you know, literally or physically I'm not, but you know, this having this Sangha has really changed everything surrounding my sitting practice. Um, and when I get up from the cushion, I sort of still feel all of y'all there, even though we're not sitting next to each other, but I can't wait until we do, you know? Yeah, I'm really excited when we get to, you know, go back to the Sangha too, but it's good that we have this digital and Zoom presence so that, you know, people like you can still join because mm -hmm. I think that was a worry that, you know, well, if we don't have the the practice at the sangha like are we gonna you know lose membership are people gonna still come you know yeah, yeah. and it turns out they do yeah totally and, and it feels super strong to me like i i don't know how other sanghas around the country are doing around the world are doing but a lot of them i mean i follow a lot of them online and a lot of them seem like they're kind of worried uh and i don't hear that here i feel like we're all adapting pretty well and yeah. people show up for the zoom calls and stuff and i mean we did we i did have so i did take jukai a month ago that was where the, when we first met in person and you know we did it outside with social distancing and everything but like my whole family got to come and be on the lawn and there were seven of us we had we we did the forms and you know sensei was there and there was incense and we we you know we got our vestments and everything so I still feel like we took our photo, you know, I still feel like I've been physically part of this. But the fact that that got pulled together to have Jukai and to have Zaike Tokudo for the new disciples the week after, despite everything that's going on, like, I just I feel like this Sangha is really clear eyed about what needs to happen in order to maintain Sangha through, you know, the rest of this pandemic and for the future and i hope it also means that there's sort i mean i think it does clearly it does mean that that it's also it's kind of loosening the bonds of what it means to be like a local sangha and seo already was this big network there's people all over the place and there was already some like online collaboration there but you know what i'm hoping that having regular podcast style conversations will do is expand our community that this wonderful tight-knit community that we're able to have out into the world for people who are all over the place looking yes. for people like us i think the coronavirus has really been a catalyst to be able to do this when we redesigned the silent thunder order website we had that in mind that we wanted to bring people together and create an atmosphere that you didn't have to be local in order to be a part of the bigger sangha, the the larger Silent Thunder Order sangha, 
And I think that this is working. It's working because of uh, people like you, too, who are willing to be like, I can see potential in this becoming something bigger and I want to help out. Well, that's what we're going to do here on Householders is, is we're going to expand that potential and the conversation that we have will sort of begin from the place of like you and me talking. But I think that we're going to branch out into not only talking to other people, uh, which is something that I really look forward to doing, both the people in our lives that we encounter while we're trying to maintain our Zen practice, like our family members or friends or whatever, but also other members of our Sangha and our teachers and um, whoever else will serve the conversation that we're trying to have. But we'll also be branching out into various topics, the things that come up for lay people who practicing Zen. And I guess this is probably sounds like the beginning of the show, but I should frame what we're doing here a little bit more like uh we're lay people like we've said in this story that we've told like we're we're i don't know what your plans are i don't know what my plans are but like right now i'm not planning to be a zen teacher i'm planning to be a rabbi's husband and a father of daughters and a person who lives a an american life much like the the lives of other americans but Zen practice is, is like core to who, to how I do that. And, and I think that one of the messages that I want to send by doing this with you is that that's core Zen practice. You, you don't need to be a monk to practice Zen, and you don't even need to look up to monks to practice Zen. That's the whole teaching of our kind of Zen, is that the practice is everywhere at all times. The Dharma is everywhere at all times, and like we are given tons of opportunities to do Zen practice just by walking down the street or washing the dishes or changing diapers or whatever it is. When my daughter, my second daughter that was born in September was about to be born, Sensei Indokasan said to me, that baby's going to be your Zen teacher now. Yep. You know, almost in a like, I'm not going to be your Zen teacher anymore. You're, that baby is going to be your Zen teacher kind of way. And obviously, like, that's not true. And also, like, everyone is your Zen teacher. And that was kind yeah. of the joke he was making. But he he's he, he was definitely right. I'm glad he was there to warn me this time because uh, I, I thought I remembered what it was like to have a newborn baby and to try and sort of keep yourself and your life, like, on rails uh, uh, but my older daughter's two now, so clearly I'd forgotten, and it's just all—it's just all crazy around here now. But like my Zen practice is still rock solid every day, and and that's the kind of stuff I want to talk about. Is like how how do we do that, and and how you and I do that, and how the the people who we get to talk with us do that. You know, since I have this background with, I've read a bunch of Thich Nhat Hanh books. You know, he goes into how to live every single moment in your life you know in a zen practice mm -hmm. how to find these moments where you can you can practice and you don't have to necessarily just be sitting to do that or like everything can be a part of the practice and uh, that's the kind of attitude I, I like to to have when continuing the practice that sometimes before i was more committed to it i would think that if i don't go to zen i'm not doing zen mm -hmm. and that's not true but it is very important don't get me wrong and you know there's there's definitely benefits to it but you can't think of it as either i'm not doing zen or i am doing zen it has to be more integral and integrated into your life householders is a production of the atlanta soto zen center 
in Atlanta, Georgia, and the Silent Thunder Order. Find us on the web at ASZC.org. Our Sangha depends on your support. You can donate by PayPal to donate at storder.org. Gasho.